0: If we had been born and raised in a small village in a valley and spent our whole life there, uh, growing up, going to school, starting our own adulthood in whatever way we would choose to do that, and coming to know everyone that lived there and the the streets, and alleys, and the shops, and and become intimately familiar with the whole web of life there. If one day we were asked to take a trip up into the surrounding mountains, And as we climbed higher into the mountains and left what was familiar, we would begin to see the familiar from a different perspective. And when we got to the top of the peak, the mountain, wherever we were going, and we looked around, we would see this vast panorama of unfamiliar stuff. All that we know is in that little village down there in that one valley. Our whole life, every person, everything that we know is there. And yet we see its place in the bigger picture. It's just one of many villages in many valleys and this Uh, web of life that we had thought was so fulfilling our whole life is just one small piece of what we now see to be true. We would have a different understanding of our life. But we would also have to go back down the mountain and go back home and, uh, you know, the dishes and go to work in the morning. But the way we would live our life, doing the same thing at home, at work, at play, in that familiar village, might be very different. We would have a different understanding of what we were doing, how we were doing, where, where it all fit in the scheme of things. The knowledge gained from that perspective at the top of the mountain would inform our life. It would condition our life. It would transform our life. And when we returned home, things would be the same, but different. This retreat is something like that. Rumi says, unless you have lived something, it is not true. When we ask, what is it we have lived here? What have we truly discovered here? That we couldn't get elsewhere or hadn't gotten elsewhere? What have we had to struggle with to learn how to live with, here? What perspective, what knowledge, have we gained? Vipassana means to see clearly, to see the inner characteristic, and to see the underlying truth of things. What we're practicing here is seeing beneath the surface, seeing beneath the appearance of things, seeing the inner characteristic, the inner truth, the underlying truth of our life. We know the familiar stories. We've been narrating them to ourselves for as long as we've lived. But that narration and the, the volume of that narration can and does prevent us from seeing beneath the surface, from seeing more deeply into our life. Tonight I want to speak about three of the truths that we have discovered and have learned to live with to a degree while we're here. And these three truths are the three universal characteristics Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. We have known that things change. Seasons change, people change, relationships change, jobs change. Things change. But we have to admit that we've had to learn how to live with the fact of change in a different way here the change of the mind, the body, moment-to-moment. Moment. We have also known of dukkha, pain, dissatisfaction, feelings of insecurity or vulnerability. We struggle much of our life to 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 get away from these feelings of insecurity and vulnerability. And yet we have been here for some time, looking this truth square in the eye and saying, can I learn to live with this? How can I learn to live with this? And having to accommodate this truth. We may not know really what anatta means. We may never have heard of it before practice. But now we have some words, maybe some understanding, and maybe a growing appreciation for this truth. How out of control the mind and body really is. How ephemeral it all is, how insubstantial, how dependent we are. On all these other impermanent conditions. This points to the truth of anatta. We say this is a practice. Mindfulness is a practice. It's a practice to see these truths. It takes practice to live with these truths. Our whole life, outside of practice, outside of awareness, is an attempt to deny them. To make the world solid. Stop the change. To be secure. To be autonomous. And so, if our habits are that way, it'll take practice to change that habit. To see things as they are. The Buddha began his teachings of his understanding of the truth, his realization of the truth. He began it by talking about the first noble truth, dukkha-sacca, the truth of dukkha. I have mentioned before, I'll mention now, life is suffering is a poor translation of dukkha-sacca. So we should understand what dukkha really means, the truth of dukkha, so that we don't get misled by a careless interpretation. In my practice, I heard, like the translation, life is suffering. And I didn't get it. Life didn't seem like suffering to me. It seemed pretty good. I don't mean to say that I didn't have pains and fears and insecurities, feeling vulnerable, rampant emotions. But that was just my personal personal, uh, deficiency, or so I thought. I couldn't open to the universality of that truth. It's difficult to open to the truth of dukkha. We have to sit, you know, an hour at a time before we can finally say, the body hurts, the mind is hurting me, or driving me crazy, or whatever it is. But it becomes clear when we stop distracting ourselves or running away from the moment's experience we see. Oh, this experience is what the Buddha is pointing to as being dukkha. Now, what have we discovered dukkha means? Well, of course, dukkha means pain, unpleasantness of one sort or another. That's fairly obvious. This is definitely um, unsatisfactory, unsatisfying. It's not what we would choose. But that's just the obvious meaning of dukkha. Ajahn Chah says there's there's ordinary dukkha, and that's the pains, the aches and pains, and the and the stuff that you can't get away from, no matter what you do. But he says there is an extraordinary dukkha, and that is what is caused by clinging, attachment, or craving. All of the mental chatter that goes along with an unpleasant feeling, an unpleasant sensation in the body, that's extraordinary suffering. Suffering that, or dukkha, that we can begin to uh, learn to live with and to put aside and to not create for ourselves Loneliness, fear, jealousy, wanting, not getting, anxiety, despair, depression, angst. These are optional experiences in life, but for many of us, they don't feel optional. They impose themselves on us. This is what the Buddha was talking about when he said, hmm, Dukkha saccha obvious pain, obvious unpleasantness. There's another meaning to dukkha, and it's the meaning of being vulnerable, being insecure. No matter what the condition, no matter what our physical, mental, emotional, political, economic, financial, uh, gender condition, we can't be sure that it's going to stay that way. There's no power in, on earth, in heaven or earth, that can guarantee to us that things will stay the same. And because of that, we suffer this feeling of being vulnerable, being insecure. Even if conditions now are good, acceptable, pleasant, dukkha has the meaning that because it could change, this is dukkha. We're vulnerable. We could say dukkha is hidden in pleasant experience, because when pleasantness changes, dukkha becomes apparent. A third meaning of the word dukkha, refers to all that is required to live this life, to care for this body, to care for this mind. And sometimes in the quiet of the middle of a retreat, sometimes we can actually open to just how much. Our life is just taking care of this body. That's our whole life. And we do it with greater or less finesse. But nevertheless, that's that's our job. And if there's time left over, we can do something of our own choice. That is oppressive. It's no secret, I just have to put words to the truth, as the Buddha did. He said, take a look. You can see why it's hard to uh, open to the full depth of what this means, dukkha. But we do. We, we, we have been practicing here for five or five weeks or two and a half months now, to try to understand how we can be at peace with this fact. How we can mm, not run away from, not deny, not be afraid of, not try to fix, not even personalize this truth. But to see it, that well, this is the way it is. Now, how can I relate to it so that I suffer least? And that, that's been our practice, a lot of it. How to accommodate the aches and pains in the body and the stuff that goes on in the mind, the fears of the future, the anxiety, the regret over the past. The dukkha of our life. And even though we all have our own personal pile of dukkha, we all have also learned how to clean out the stables a little bit and actually um, get some relief from it. We've learned how to be with the body in pain and not suffer, or to be with the mind that is has a mind of its own and not be so tormented. This is invaluable knowledge. This is just, just invaluable skill that we have learned here. There's no other way to get that knowledge, to get that skill but to sit, walk, and pay attention. You can read it in the book, but it just doesn't work that way. And we know that. As much as we'd like to think, there's got to be an easier way. I'm sure you have considered every other option. (laughs) Please let me know (laughs) if you've come up with anything. So we have learned a lot about the way things are and how to live with it. (coughs) We learn how to open to the unpleasant without identifying with it. We learned that to feel vulnerable is not a personal deficiency. We learned to tolerate a greater amount of instability, insecurity in our life. We've learned that the blind pursuit of pleasure does not bring happiness, and we have learned and understood the impossibility of providing security for ourselves or another. These are invaluable truths, invaluable knowledge, which we take with us when we come down off the top of the mountain. We may not be sitting. Um, with such stillness, or such uh, continuity of mindfulness, or such concentration a week after we get home? Probably not, actually. But nevertheless, we do have an understanding of how to be in situations that are unpleasant, that are challenging, that are filled with dukkha. We have an understanding of how to live with that. How to live that truth. The second arena of knowledge, the second universal characteristic, the second great truth that we have struggled with, to learn, to live with, is the truth of impermanence. The truth of a Nietzsche. If we look reflectively around the world, change is ubiquitous. Everything is changing all the time. So it's no secret. Yet, in our individual confrontation with life, we struggle to make things solid, to fix things, to know how it's going to be, to get commitments, to to create organizational and relationship structures, to hold our life in place, to somehow to try to deny change. We love predictability. Just notice that feeling when the sign goes up, lunch will be 10 minutes late. It's only 10 minutes. We love predictability. And when things don't go quite according to schedule, the mind goes into a flurry. The heart just goes off on its own anger, uh, frustration, resentment, whatever it is, blaming somebody, automatic. We suffer because of this. We suffer because it's hard to open to and live with the truth of impermanence. It takes practice. That's what we've been doing here. Practicing living with the truth that things change, not according to our wishes. Whatever personal habits we have to deal with the unpredictability and the change works to a degree. When they don't work, we feel stressed. As we approach this end of the retreat, and it's coming, you've all seen it on the horizon somewhere, the fact of change is really looming big. We're, we're, We're in transition mode now, or we will be soon, from here to there from yogi to something else, from Massachusetts to a warmer climate. (laughs) The Buddha said, more than a life of living ethically, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, a life of generosity, developing loving-kindness, more than this, is a single moment of seeing the truth of impermanence. A single moment. Obviously, it's not just thinking about, oh yeah, things change. But it's this deep realization and learning to live with the fact of change that the Buddha is talking about learning to open to, acknowledge the truth, and live with it in a way that does not cause suffering, that does not cause the anxiety, the fear, but to be at some level of peace and contentment with the fact of change. We know our experience changes moment to moment. Our sense of ourselves changes moment to moment. Our practice changes moment to moment. And it's very unsettling, destabilizing to open to this truth. Life is constantly falling out from underneath us. One yogi came in and said to me, things are changing, I don't know what to expect anymore. Good insight. We never know what to expect if we're open to the truth of impermanence. We never know what to expect. This year's Nobel winner in poetry This uh, Polish woman, Wisława Szymborska, wrote a great poem in 1957 called Nothing Twice. And I want to read part of it, if I can see it. Nothing can ever happen twice. In consequence, the sorry fact is that we arrive here improvised and leave without a chance to practice. Even if there is no one dumber, if you are the planet's biggest dunce, you can't repeat the class this summer. This course is only offered once. And she says later, Why do we treat the fleeting day with so much needless fear and sorrow? It's in its nature not to stay. Today is always gone tomorrow. Why do we fret so much about what will inevitably change? When we, and as we do here, learn to open to the fact of change, that we are always in transition, we can learn to let go of our need for predictability, dependability, permanence, and grieve the loss of what has passed. Some already begin have begun the grieving process of the end of the retreat. It's coming, we know. These conditions will fall apart. We have learned or practiced being able to feel the loss, grieve its loss, and be present for the next moment. This takes practice. It's not, uh, it's not automatic, it's not easy even, but it's something that we have spent this time doing, learning how to Let go. Let be. How to lose what we lose. What we have to lose. It's instructive as we approach the end of the retreat to notice how we're relating to the end of the retreat. Does it look uh, like something to be afraid of? Excited about? sad about, curious, and maybe all of these and more at different times. Because the way we approach the end of a retreat tells us a lot about the way we'll approach the end of a job, the end of a relationship, the end of our life. There's a lot to be learned in just this process of looking to the end, seeing it coming, and learning to relate to it in a way that acknowledges the truth of impermanence. as we open to the truth of impermanence. It transforms our life in that we struggle less to maintain the status quo. We can accept the fact of inevitable transformation. As things change, they're transformed. If we're awake to that process, if we cultivate an awareness of it, we can guide that transformation. If we deny it, run from it, fear it, the transformation will occur without our wisdom, without our participation. This is another skill that we have learned here. How to live at ease in the face of change. Little change, moment to moment. Big change, day to day, or bigger. The changing body, the changing mind, emotions, sense of ourselves. These things change every moment of our life, whether we're on retreat or not. And the skill with which we have learned to navigate this turbulent change is the skill that we take home with us. We don't leave it here. We take this with us. The third characteristic, or the universal characteristic of all phenomena, is anatta. And the literal translation seems to be selflessness, or egolessness, or no-soulness. I think this is an unnecessarily frightening translation. Who can imagine being egoless? selfless, soulless, and so I believe that translation to be incomplete, misleading, and confusing. There was an old Chinese monk in Penang, where I practiced for some years, who who had a pithy poem about this enigmatic condition He said, everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to be nobody. If there was ever somebody who was really a nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. (laughs) We know exactly what he means, don't we? We've seen it. Everybody wants to be somebody. We've certainly seen that. Nobody wants to be a nobody. We've certainly seen that. If there was ever somebody who was really a nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. (laughs) This truth of anatta is the Buddha's unique realization. It's the key to freedom from suffering from happiness, the deepest happiness, peace, contentment. It's the key to it. And the Buddha realized that it was a profound insight, difficult to see, very subtle, difficult to see, difficult to grasp or to understand. And he said, the wrong view of anatta, or personality belief or ego belief has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded beings. It is the factor that is most guilty of misleading us, confusing us in our search for happiness. So what does anata mean? And can we verify it or confirm it for ourselves through our practice? Have we seen this truth here? You have heard many explanations or definitions or ways of acknowledging or seeing anatta here. But essentially it refers to the truth that there's no independent, autonomous, self-existing entity in this mind-body process. We see that when we see how ephemeral experience is, how fleeting experience is, how evanescent it is, how out of control or ungovernable it is, when we see the conditional nature of our sense of who we are, built on the flimsiest of impermanent conditions. We've all seen this characteristic of our life, of our experience, over and over again. It is a practice. It takes practice to see this truth. It's not automatic. Our habits don't run to this truth, they run contrary to it. We can begin to understand the truth of anatta that there is no solid, separate, self-existing entity in, in many ways in practice. So I want to mention a few of them. When we come here, last September or early November, we come with a very tightly woven sense of who we are. The conditions of our life, where we live, what we do, who we know, the roles and relationships that we have, the experiences we have or don't have, they have woven a very tight tapestry of this life called me. And one of the things that we do here is we practice taking apart that tapestry we practice seeing not the picture that the tapestry has created from a distance, but getting closer to see the threads that make up that picture. And so we we end up taking apart this thing called me. And what do we see? Physical experiences, pleasant and unpleasant, aches and pains and, you know, tightness and vibration and pulsing and heat and cold. And we take apart this mental experience. And what do we see? Thoughts and fantasies and memories and plans and judgments. Emotions, mental states, intentions. Anything else? What else have we seen? That's about it. We, we, if we took apart every thread of that tapestry, the picture would be undiscernible. And so too, when we take apart this life of Steve, this life of whoever you are, and we lay it out in this very clear sequence that it is, what do we see? Pieces Hardly a picture at all. Certainly not a self-existing autonomous being. This is hard to do. This is really hard to do. And even when we do it, we still don't believe it. We still think, yeah, I've taken it all apart and I'm still here. This is a powerful, powerful habit that we spell, that we have been cast under. As one of my favorite uh, musical groups has so accurately said, I was blind all the time. I was learning to see. We are. We're blind. We go into this blind. We take it all apart. We don't know what we're looking at. And yet somewhere in there, we begin to see, ha uh-huh, ha there really isn't anything stable, solid. Anything you brought with you when you started the retreat, you can't take home. Some are going to say, yippee, <laughs> and some are going to say, oh no, but it's true. That sense of ourself that came here has gone. A new sense of self will go home. It's not solid, it's not fixed. We can't, we, 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 we have a difficult time maintaining a stable sense of ourself throughout a whole day, good sitting, bad sitting, which one are we? And not even uh, not even a whole day, it's just a whole sitting. This is really pointing to this truth, and we've all had that experience. We've all had this experience of being unable to sustain any sense of ourselves. What is that pointing to? It's pointing to the fact that there isn't one. <laughs> Hard to acknowledge, though. One um, familiar last resort that we, as yogis, love to cling to is, I am the one being mindful. Hmm. You know, mindfulness gets good, and that's what we notice, I'm being mindful. Sometimes we really open to the truth that mindfulness is just being mindful of itself. And it is destabilizing. It really shakes us up when we open to the truth that I am not responsible for mindfulness. Conditions. Other impersonal conditions make it happen. And sometimes we get this glimpse, you know, you've all had it, I'll tell you, I'll show you. Sometimes mindfulness wakes us up, rather than we waking up mindfulness. What is going on there? Really, when mindfulness says, hey, Steve, come here now. And we've all had that experience. We just find ourselves being mindful without even intending it. If we could truly understand what that experience means, we would see. Anatta. That's what it means. That's what it's pointing to. It takes practice to see it over and over again. Another um, way that we begin to confirm this truth of anatta, is we notice how ungovernable our experience is, how uncontrollable, we might say. You may have been asked this question before, can you control your body? Can you control your mind? We, you know, generally think, well, sure, of course. But if we could, why wouldn't we say, okay mind, be happy? And it would happen. Or, okay body, don't be painful. We can say it. We don't control it. We, we don't, we don't, we can't make it happen. The body is, the mind is, out of our direct control. It's ungovernable. It's due to other conditions that we experience, the mind and body, that we do. What is this experience pointing to? Because we've all had that. We all know that. We've, we've been practicing, living with the fact that we can't, we can't make it happen. We can't ever finally get it together, so to speak. There's no getting. What happens when we, we sit, and after some amount of time, pain comes up in the body. And then we start this uh, decision-making process. Should I move or should I just sit still? And uh, fear comes up and says, oh, I better move because I might hurt my body. I might do some damage. And aversion comes up and says, oh boy, this is really uncomfortable. I don't like this. And desire comes up and says, hmm, wouldn't it be nice to get some relief or comfort? But determination says, wait a minute, I'm here, I'm a yogi, I'm going to bear with this and I'm going to see this to the end. Compassion comes up and says, oh, I should be uh, compassionate towards my suffering and, uh, you know, send compassion to my knee, or move. <laughs> or boredom comes up and says oh, this pain again I've seen this before why should I sit with it again? <laughs> Doubt comes up and says what, what's the sense of sitting with this pain anyway? What am I getting from this? And somewhere further along that line of stuff we move or we don't who moved? Who moved? Did pain move? Did boredom move? Did desire move? Did aversion move? One of them had the ascendancy and took over. Can we say, oh, that's me? No. We see again and again how there really is no one home to make the decisions, to open the door, to close the door, to move or not to move. Other conditions rule the day. So we deconstruct this tightly woven tapestry. We see the ungovernability, the uncontrollability of um, experience. Another way that we begin to confirm the truth of anatta is we see how ephemeral experience is. Initially, the body feels pretty solid. We know where the knee is, where the back is, where the aches and pains in the neck are. But many of us, in time, come to, through practice, see that the body is really not so solid. It's not so substantial. And in fact, when we try to put our finger on, so to speak, an experience, we can't. Because as soon as we get there, it's not there. We see just how ephemeral, how insubstantial this apparently solid body is, or we see how ephemeral the mind is. You know, as you have been asked before, what's a thought? Show me a thought. Take a look at one, bring it out here and, and What does it look like? Where does it come from? What is its substance? Can't answer those questions. It's too ephemeral, too insubstantial. One time when I was practicing in Burma, after several years actually, I took a vow not to speak for some amount of time. And, of course, I couldn't keep the vow. I'm very talkative. But somewhere along the line, I did start to um, not talk so much. And an interesting thing happens. When we stop putting ourselves out, presenting ourselves to anyone, we stop getting a reflection of who we are. And after some time, I felt very light, transparent, insubstantial, very ephemeral, so to speak. I felt naked. And more than once, I would be walking to the hall, the meditation hall, or walking to lunch, or walking to see Upandita, and I would get this intensely strong feeling that I was naked. And I would have to look at myself to make sure I had my robes on, because the feeling was so, the body was just so insubstantial. There was nothing there, so to speak. Very light, insubstantial, transparent, unsettling at times, <laughs> embarrassing sometimes. And I went and I told my teacher at the time, it wasn't Saira and it was another teacher, Ulakana. And I told him what I was feeling, and he said, this is how you felt just after you came out of your mother's womb, before you got identified with the body, before you even knew you had one. We can take this practice to that truth, that we are not this body and see just how insubstantial it really is, how ephemeral. Taking apart the web of life, seeing the uncontrollability, the ephemerality, maybe our most solid sense of self comes through external conditions. The roles and relationships of our life seem to fix us in their intersections. How they intersect, that's where we are. When I sit up here, teacher. When I go home, partner or dad. When I'm on the airplane, it's frequent flyer. (laughs) Do get to fly a lot. And, of course, join the frequent flyer club and get some benefits from, from flying on the same airline. Well, one time I had to change my flight from when I was supposed to leave at eight in the morning, to the night flight the night before. And I called ahead and the airline said, oh, there's plenty of seats. There's at least a third of the plane is empty, going to be plenty of seats to fly standby. So I said, all right, I'll try it. Got to the airport and they said, oh no, one flight canceled. All those people are on this flight. There's not going to be any room. So I said, but I'm a frequent flyer. Well, You're flying standby. So I said, all right, I'll wait and fly standby and see if there's any seats. So I went to the waiting room, uh, the lounge, the departure lounge, and it was just hundreds of people. So they were in a hurry to get the plane out, so they filed everybody on to the plane. And there were three people wanting to fly standby. I let them know that I was the frequent flyer. (laughs) (laughs) So if there was one seat I wanted it. So they said, well, the plane looks full, there's not going to be, it doesn't look like there's going to be any room, but come down to the doorway of the plane. If there's a seat, we'll put you on and we'll get out of here on time. So I made sure I was at the head of the three. And we got to the door of the plane and they were trying to sit everybody down. They they finally looked like they got everybody set down and they said, oh, there's one seat way up there, row 56 or something. (laughs) you know, in the middle of these two great big guys. And I said, great, I'm on, I'm going to get to my destination on time. Got on the plane, sat down, and was putting my stuff away, feeling very cramped, but happy. And I saw, oh, they found another seat up behind me. So the second person got on to fly also. And just as everybody was sat down, and they were making sure everybody was comfortable, about ready to close the door. Somebody got up out of first class and walked out. They called the last person who was waiting to fly, standby in, put him in first class. (laughs) I was livid. (laughs) I was the (laughs) frequent flyer with the most miles. I should be in that first class seat. I was storming suffering a lot. They closed the door, sit down, sit down, we're going to take off. (laughs) They got off on time and I was furious for about 20 minutes. In the first 20 minutes, I had had composed this long letter to United Airlines saying how (laughs) mean they were. And then I realized, wait a minute, I've got six hours ahead of me. (laughs) And seeing where the suffering was coming from, I was able to just let go of being this frequent flyer. (laughs) And was just happy to be flying and getting to where I needed to go on time. Selflessness is a lot like that dropping our attachment to our roles, our relationships, the conditions that make us who we think we are. Nothing changed. I I was on the plane, I was still a frequent flyer, I was getting to where I was going to go, everything was the same except I wasn't suffering. The insight into anatta is like that. Nothing changes. You're still who you are, except you don't suffer. When we drop our attachment, when we see through our hanging on to who we think we are, whatever role, relationship, entity we think we are, we aren't. It's the source of suffering. And if we let go of it, we remain exactly who we are without suffering. What is frightening about that? Nothing. These truths, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or vulnerability and insecurity, and this truth of essencelessness, ephemerality, conditionality, these truths take practice to see. We have been practicing now these truths. We all have seen them to some degree. It's extraordinary that we would do that. The skill we have learned, we can take home with us. The experiences we've had here, we can't. This Polish poet had another short and very interesting poem, which it took me some time to understand was really about Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha. It's called The Three Oddest Words. When I pronounce the word future, The first syllable already belongs to the past. When I pronounce the word silence, I destroy it. When I pronounce the word nothing, I make something no non-being can hold. Let's sit for a minute. conditioned things, arise and pass away, and seeing this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace.